Welcome to the Mission North Shore podcast. If you'd like to know more about our ministry here at the Mission, visit us online at www.themissionnorthshore.org. Thanks for listening. God bless. How is everybody? All right. Let's turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 is kind of a famous chapter. Um, it's one of the m- more well-known chapters, one of the more popular chapters. But what we're going to look at this morning and what we need to grab a hold of is that this is an incredibly important chapter. The reason that Luke chapter 15 is so important is because it explicitly tells us how God views us. It explicitly tells us how God views the lost, how much he loves us, how he feels towards us, his view of us. And that's important because, as you guys already know, there are a lot of different people with a lot of different views of how their God looks at them, right? And many of those individuals view God as mostly angry, always ready to come down on them. And oftentimes, with that view of God. They spend their whole lives working hard, doing things, doing these, performing these uh, religious rituals in a hope of finding favor with God. So they're doing a whole bunch of religious type of stuff in an effort to appease this angry God. And hopefully through a life just of doing a whole lot of religious type of stuff, they'll find approval with God and they'll hopefully be able to earn their salvation with God. Guys, much of the world lives under that kind of a view of God. Most of our false religions and cults and even some Christian groups view God that way. Religion does that. Religion says that. It teaches that you got to strive to get close to God. It's on you. you got to make that effort to get there and get to God. But in Luke chapter 15, Jesus is going to give three parables here to show that the true and living God is quite different than that. That actually God loves us even when we were very, very unlovable. And that out of that love, He pursues us and that God is filled with great joy when one of us is restored to him, when that relationship that was broken by sin is then restored to him. So Luke chapter 15 has these three parables in it. Now, today we're only going to do two of these parables and next week we'll come and pick up the third one. Let's pray. Lord, as we open your word, we ask you to anoint it. Jesus, I don't know what's going on in everybody's life and whatever heaviness of the week that they have brought in this morning, but I pray that you would now help them. Set all of that aside. Clear our hearts and our minds that we may focus on you and your word and allow you to do your work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Really? (laughs) Amen. We think, but we're not sure. Holy cow. Amen. Thank you. 
Let's look at verses 1 and 2 because verses 1 and 2 give us the scene and the purpose for all three of these parables. This week and next week, this will be the scene and the purpose for these parables. Verse, chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to Jesus to listen to him. That's the scene. A whole bunch of tax collectors and a whole bunch of people regarded as sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus. Both the Pharisees and the scribes, though, began to grumble, saying, and I love these words, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. Now, when it says tax collectors and sinners, it's talking about people of a notorious lifestyle, people that were not accepted by the religious people of the day. These were tax collectors. These were guys that were ripping people off. So we're talking about the the swindlers. We're talking about the drunkards, the prostitutes, the shady crowd, the people with junk in their life. Anybody ever been there? Okay, just checking. These are the outcasts. These are the marginalized by the, quote, good religious people of the day. But what did they do? They come to Jesus. So our first point is this, that the sinners and the outcasts and the vagabonds and the looked down upon people felt comfortable with Jesus. Don't let that get by us. Certainly it was not because he condoned their sin. Jesus' position was very clear from the first from the very beginning of his ministry, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus never sinned. He never condoned sin. And he always, always called people to turn from their sin. So they're not coming to Jesus because he's okay with their particular lifestyle. But they felt comfortable around Jesus because of his approach and his attitude towards them. Because they felt genuine, loving concern for them from him. Therefore, they were comfortable to be around him. In fact, the accusation in Matthew chapter 11 that's leveled against Jesus when when these particular Self-righteous religious leaders want to talk bad about Jesus. They call him a friend of sinners. That's apparently a bad thing to them. They go, you know what? We want to say something bad about Jesus. What should we say? He's a friend of sinners. Now, I don't think that accusation bothered Jesus at all. In fact, that was his very goal. It tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrated his own love toward us that what? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.10 says, For while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. So, the application right off the bat for us would be, if Jesus is a friend of sinners, and if Jesus spent time and built relationship with people that would not ordinarily show up at their synagogues and their temples, if Jesus sat down and shared a meal with outcasts and the looked down upon people for the sake of their souls, shouldn't we? 
It says in 1 Peter 2.21, it says that Christ left us an example that we would follow in his footsteps. So if that's who he is, isn't that who we should be? And so to bring that home for us, we got to ask questions like this. When is the last time that you or when is the last time that I invited somebody over for dinner or took somebody out for dinner that we wouldn't usually hang out with? They might even be people that self-righteous church people would look down upon. But we did it intentionally on purpose to build a relationship over which we can deliver the gospel. Because that's what Jesus did. Because that's who he is. And if you go through the gospels as we've been going, this isn't the first time that Jesus did this. And this isn't the first time that the scribes and Pharisees got mad at Jesus for meeting with and sitting with and eating with these kinds of people. In fact, it happened a lot because Jesus did it a lot. Now, it says in verse 2 that both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. Pharisees, by the time of Jesus, were an ultra-religious sect in Judaism. They actually started off pretty well, but as things can go within religious communities, you can become very self-righteous, and they had done that. And, the, and they were an ultra-religious sect, viewing themselves as very pious. And the Pharisees separated people into two categories, the Havarim and the Amharets. Havarim and the Amharets. You fit into one of those two categories in the day of Jesus. And these are terms that are still commonly used to mean pretty much the same thing today. The Havarim are your buddies. The Havarim are your comrades. These are your companions. These are people that are like-minded like you. Same religious convictions that you have. These are the people that you hang out with and you feel comfortable around when you meet a Havarim that you haven't ever met before, but you get to talk and you find out you have a lot of the same things in common and and you're comfortable with the Havarim. This, This is your crew. For Pharisees, it was other Pharisees. This was their crew. This was the people they were comfortable to be around. Now, if we're honest, we do this in the church to some degree, don't we? We have people that think and believe like us, so therefore we're comfortable around them. We don't have to worry about them saying inappropriate things in our presence. and So there are groups of people, aren't there, that we're more comfortable with than others, that we sound like, that we talk like. In fact, we have our own language, don't we? And this is how we find out if people are like-minded with us. We say things like sanctified, or that person is backslidden, or you need to guard your heart, or they're a carnal Christian, or that's cheap grace, or you know what you need? You need a divine appointment. You have the gift of singleness. You need a hedge of protection. You need traveling mercies. Hey, you know what we'll do? We'll put a fleece before the Lord. And nobody else in the world talks like that except for us, right? And if you talk like that around other people, 
I don't know what they're saying. They're speaking English, I think, but I don't know exactly what they're talking about. And so, but when we meet somebody and they're using those terms, we go, hey, that's a Havarim. They're like me. They believe, they think, they hold the same worldview as I do. Many Christians do that. In fact, many Christians that have been a Christian for a long time don't have any non-Christian friends anymore. They've just gravitated wholly to the people that they're comfortable with. They hang out with the Havarim. There is a second group called the Amharets. Amharets literally means people of the land. Um, Eretz in Hebrew is land. So if you say uh, uh, Eretz Israel, it means the land of Israel. They're called the people of the land literally, but it was a derogatory term. When somebody used the term Amharets, they were looking down upon somebody. They were the outsiders. They were viewed as uneducated or uncivilized. They were the non-spiritual people around the spiritual religious people. And they were highly looked down on it. This week I was looking at a, um, a particular website for um, kind of like a Jewish Bible college. It's called a yeshiva. And I, was just, I just went on there to see if they had anything about Amharets. And there was an entire... Uh, what would you call it? lecture on the Amharets by a rabbi. So I listened to how he spoke about these people and he spoke about them just as the Pharisees are speaking about them. Now, what was the term he said? They were imbeciles. That's what he literally said. And he said, you know, yes, they're Jewish people, but they're imbeciles because they didn't study under the sages like us and they don't believe and they don't keep this and that rule and this rule and that rule. These were the tax collectors, the Amharets, the, the sinners. This is the people being looked down upon by these uh, scribes and Pharisees. Now, the rabbis of that day, the Pharisaic rabbis, had developed then rules and regulations against these people that were not Pharisees, the Amharets. And so things like this. Pharisees were forbidden to buy from or sell to non-Pharisees. These outsiders, these look down upon people. This one's going to be important for us today because it's going to come up in our text. Pharisees were forbidden from eating with anybody that was not another Pharisee. They weren't allowed to eat with the Amharets. And there was a common saying that we read in Pharisaic writings, and it says this, and this is going to be very important today. Jesus is going to directly address this. They would say, and I quote, there is joy before God when those who provoke him perish from the earth. So the Pharisees would say this, meaning that God takes joy and pleasure at the death of a sinner. That was a common saying within Pharisaic writing, and, and we see that still in their writings. So the implication by these Pharisees and scribes is that if Jesus was really a good, observant, religious man, I mean, if he was a good Bible-toting fella, he never would have associated with this kind of people. And so Jesus is now giving us three parables to show that these religious guys are wrong in their understanding of God's heart for the lost and to show that they have a wrong attitude towards those to whom they're calling sinners. So these parables 
are for religious people that look down on others. That's the purpose that Jesus gives these parables. Let's look at the first one in verse 3, Luke 15, 3. So Jesus told him this parable saying, what man among you, underline that, what man among you, that's super important. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. When he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he's come home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you, now here's the application of it. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need not repentance. Now, of course, in this parable, the shepherd is a picture of Jesus coming for us. Jesus said of himself, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And we are the sheep. Sheep go astray, and we go astray, don't we? Way too often, we go astray. And sheep are not that smart because they wander off and they get themselves into predicaments that they can't find a way back from. And Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53, 6, that that is the condition of all humanity, that they have strayed from God and cannot get back on their own. Isaiah 53, 6 says, For all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. Jesus, the good shepherd, in this parable, we see leaves where he was. And he comes, and this is important to us, he comes after us. He's on mission for our sake. Jesus said of himself in Luke 19, 10, he said, for the son of man came to seek and save that which is lost. And then thirdly, in verse five, it tells us that the shepherd lays the sheep upon his shoulders and carries him. In that same way, Jesus took the cross upon his shoulders and he carried our sin and our shame and our guilt during our rescue. So the first thing that we see in this and we need to take notice of is that God is a missionary God. That the love and concern that God has for the lost turns into intentional mission to save. God is a missionary God. For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who were lost. In 1 Timothy it says, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world for what purpose? To save sinners. John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world but that the world might be saved through him. It's about the loving heart of the Father that would pursue us. You see, how we act, and we're thinking about the Pharisees now, how we act towards certain people and what we'll do for their sake depends on our attitude towards them and our view of them. Jesus loved, so he came. The Pharisees don't, so they grumble. 
Now, notice something within this, though, in verse 4. Notice that Jesus is appealing to the fact that they would all do this for a sheep. Verse 4, you have it underlined. What man among you? He's calling them all to understand that they would all do this. What man among you, if you had a hundred sheep, lost one, would not go look for the one until you found him, bring him back? He's saying to them that this would be the obvious action in our context. He's saying, which one of you guys who has a flock would not do this? This would be done by all of you. So then Jesus is saying to them, well, every one of you would do this much for a sheep. Then why is it so hard for you to understand that I would do this for a person? I was thinking about it like this. Most of us don't have sheep. But for most of us, we have things in our lives that if we lost that thing, we would expend a lot of time and an enormous energy searching for it, don't we? I mean, if you got up and your car was missing, you wouldn't just go like, eh, whatever, no big deal. There would be a search. There would be cops called. There would be an APB put out or something like that. If you were engaged to get married, gals, and you lost that ring two days after it was given to you, there would be a mad search going on in the location where you feel like you probably lost that, right? Yeah. I mean, there's things in our lives. Yours is probably different than mine. There's things in our lives that we would set out on a mad search for if we lost that thing. But the question is this. Are we willing to expend that same time and energy for the sake of lost people? You see what Jesus is doing with these guys. He goes, which one of you guys, if you lost your sheep, wouldn't go find him? You would do this for a sheep. Why is it so hard to imagine that I would do this for the souls of people? And so the main point here in these parables is that this is the heart of God for lost people. And that's why he says in verse 6, when he comes home, he's found his sheep, he comes home, he calls his friends and his neighbors, and they throw a party. And then he gives you the application in verse 7. He says, I tell you, in the same way, that same rejoicing, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons who need no repentance. In each one of these parables that we're going to look at, both today and and next week, the emphasis is on the joy of God for, and don't miss this, for the individual that was redeemed and restored to God. What that means then is this. God loves you. God rejoices when you got saved. That means that God's not looking at us as a mass of humanity, but he knows and he loves you as an individual. It's not as if at the end of the day, God gets a a tally sheet, you know, of how many people got saved that day. And yesterday it was 500, so he was super stoked. And today it was, you know, 50, so that's okay, but not great. And, And, you know, try harder tomorrow kind of a thing. No, Jesus is nuts about you as an individual. He rejoices over your individual salvation. You. Not just us as a mass. And he's not working on 
high percentages. Well, if I had, you know, 80%, that'd be great. He cares about you. Now, here's what that means. That's why our individual devotion is so important. That's why our individual repentance is so important. That's why our individual worship is so important. That's why our individual relationship with Him is so important because He's a personal God that cares about the one, you. Now, in the second parable, it teaches essentially the same thing. Look at verse 8. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. When she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which, which I had lost. And in the same way, I tell you, that there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, because it specifically points out that this is a woman with ten silver coins, these are Greek drachmas, they're worth about the day's wages. Because it points out that it's a woman with 10 of them, this is most likely a reference to the 10 silver coins she would be given on her wedding day by her husband. This is not the dowry. A dowry was something different. But as a part of the Jewish wedding ceremony, each bride was given by the husband 10 silver coins, and she would generally string them together with a chain and wear them around her head or something like that. So if that's the case, they're worth far more than the face value of the coin, right? It would be as if you lost your wedding ring. It was at the ceremony. It was a part of the ceremony. It was very, very meaningful. And so again, like the lost sheep, the emphasis is on the search for the lost and the joy for the found. That's God's heart for humanity, that there's more joy, it tells us, in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents. Now, I've heard oftentimes, usually when there's an altar call going on or something like that, when somebody gets saved, oftentimes a preacher will say, listen, the angels in heaven are throwing a party right now, and they use this verse. And maybe they are, and certainly they're happy over anybody that gets saved, but that's not what it says. It says that the joy and the rejoicing in heaven is in the presence of the angels. Now, whose presence are the angels in heaven in? They're in God's head, in God's presence. So it appears that it's God who's doing the rejoicing, and that would be more consistent with the other two parables here in Luke chapter 15. So it appears that the angels whose scripture tells us worship day and night and are rejoicing day and night in the presence of God. But when somebody gets saved, it's God who bursts out in rejoicing. Now, that's important because we remember the common saying of the Pharisees of that day, right? They had this attitude. They had this belief in this saying that there was joy before God when a sinner perished from the earth. So Jesus is directly dealing with that. And he's saying, you guys don't know the heart of God. He doesn't take joy in the death of the sinner. In fact, in Ezekiel, it tells us the exact opposite. Ezekiel 18, 23 says, do you think 
that I like to see the wicked people die, says the sovereign Lord? Of course not. I want them to turn from their wicked ways and live. And so Jesus is saying to these guys, God's joy comes from when the lost are reconciled to him. Jesus is addressing these guys and their attitude toward people. And he's saying, you know what? God's joy comes when the outcast, when the person that you won't even sit down and have dinner with repents and gets saved, that's what brings God joy. Not when they perish. He's directly dealing with something that they said on a regular basis. We're going to finish with this. Remembering where we started. Look again at at verse 1 and 2. It says, Now, All the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. Now, I want to take from those two verses three things that we can take away and apply to our lives. Number one is we need to check our hearts that we're not these Pharisees. We need to check our hearts and see, is this our attitude towards people? Because all of these parables that Jesus is going to give is to teach the heart of God for self-righteous religious people that look down on others. That's the whole point of this. That viewed themselves as worthy of God when others were not. And before we get super critical of the scribes and the Pharisees, we need to remind ourselves how easy this is to do for us. And if we're honest, we would recognize that oftentimes this happens in church, doesn't it? That we come to Jesus and he cleans us up a little bit, doesn't he? And we might not do the things that we used to do. And after a little water under the bridge and after having walked with him for a little while, there's a danger then that we start to look down on people that do those same things that we used to do. There's a danger of forgetting that we are what we are only by the grace of God. And there's a danger of forgetting that if God can save me, He can save anyone. And there's a danger of then becoming like these Pharisees. We have to look at our heart. We have to make sure that we're not them. We got to remember that before we experienced the grace of God, we were no different than anyone else. And Paul tells us that in Ephesians chapter 2. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. You see what he's saying there? We were all like that. In our own, left to ourself, sinful nature, this is who we were. But verse 4 says, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our, trans- in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You see what Paul's doing right there? He's saying the same thing. He's saying, listen, before you were saved, this is who you were. Don't forget 
that but God being rich in mercy part. You see, the problem with the Pharisees in this story is they don't understand ministry and they don't understand the mission of Jesus because they don't understand the heart of God for people. They don't understand the but God being rich in His mercy because of His great love with which He loveth even when you were dead in your transgressions made you alive with Christ Jesus. So then the question that we have to ask, that being the case, is who around me am I most likely to neglect? Who around me am I most likely to walk by? Who around me in my community would I never even think of sitting down to a meal with? Who around me have I never once considered, hey, you want to come over and have dinner at my house? Never ever given that a thought. Number two is that Jesus came after the lost and he was very intentional about it. The question then is, are we? Like the shepherd after the sheep, like the woman after the coin, God searches for the lost sinner. Jesus knew that this was the mission of his life on earth. And Jesus said, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. It says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It was intentional. It was on purpose. And since we are then called and given an example, as it says in 2 Peter, to follow in his footsteps, the question is then this. Do we live our everyday lives? That's important to this. Do we live our everyday lives with that same missional intentionality? Do we live our everyday lives that way? At work, at school, in our neighborhood, at food land, whatever sport that you play or group that you gather with at any point in time. Do we live with that same missional intentionality. I was thinking about it this way because uh, this week uh, Butch and I had a whatever conference call with the crew down in the Philippines and we're looking at planning another short-term mission trip to the Philippines down there and so we're starting to talk about all of the things that we need to do and to get together and uh, if you've ever been on a short-term mission trip you know that in the time leading up to that what do you do? You get very intentional don't you? about ministry. You start having team meetings, getting everybody together, get everybody on the same page. You begin to pray more in that direction. You begin to save money. You begin to prepare material. You begin planning things. You get on a plane and you go there for the sake of people. You get off of that plane and you're looking for every opportunity that could come your way. You'll talk to anybody when you get off that plane, won't you? You'll tell anybody in that country about Jesus. Every day that you wake up, you wake up with your mind on that day's ministry when you're on a short-term mission trip, don't you? Why don't we always do that? That's what Jesus did. He looked at the world around him and he was intentional about mission. He was always on mission. 
And I just got thinking about last week, man, we're going to do a lot of planning. We're going to do a lot of prepping. We're going to do a lot of praying to get this mission trip off. Why don't I do that same thing every day for the sake of my neighbor? And the person I see at Food Lamp. Number three is this. This was a big part of your home groups this week, and that is to build relationships. Do you know why Jesus in our story did and often did? That didn't mean good English. Do you know why Jesus is now sitting down with the sinners and the outcasts? Do you know why Jesus often sat down and ate a meal with the sinners and the outcasts? It's because very, very few people get saved by somebody just preaching at them. It happens. It has happened. It's very rare. It's very rare for people to get saved by somebody just cold walking up to them and start preaching Jesus to them. Most people get saved because someone they knew and someone they trust took the time to build a relationship and to reach out to them through that relationship, to build a relationship over which they can deliver the gospel. And so Jesus was intentional about building relationships with the people that nobody else was reaching. Relationships are key. I mean, I bet that if most of us gave our testimony, it was because somebody cared enough. Maybe a few of you got saved just from straight up preaching or just straight up reading the word or something like that. But most people got saved as a result of a relationship. So what does that say for us as a church as what we need to do in our community? We need to be a relational people. We need to be a people intentionally reaching out to others. You know, the the Pharisees' complaint in verse 2 actually sums up Jesus' mission perfectly, doesn't it? It says, this man received sinners and he ate with them. That just sums up Jesus beautifully. He received sinners and he ate with them. The question then is this, is that us? Because that's who he was. And if we're called to be like him, is that us? Lord, we thank you. Praise you for your word. Lord, I recognize in myself that that's not always an easy thing to do. Lord, I recognize that it's easy to gather with the people that are like-minded, that think like I do, that aren't going to bring a bunch of junk into my life, and that's easy, but that wasn't you. Lord, we recognize that you cared about the marginalized. You cared about those that were pushed to the side. You reached out to the people that no religious people were reaching out to. Lord, I pray that right now we would take a great cue from that. That you would come and begin to minister to our hearts about who it is in our community that we look down upon. Maybe the way they talk. 
Maybe they're crude. Maybe the job they have, maybe because they don't have a job. Maybe because they're dirty and homeless or whatever it is, Lord. Show us the people right now that in, if you were here, and you were walking on this North Shore physically, the people you would go to, the people that no other religious people are going to. May our hearts break for them like your heart breaks, Lord. May we care for the hurting. Lord, I pray that this week we would, every one of us, take this truth from your word and apply it to our lives. That we would go out and intentionally seek people that we would generally not. People that we might have a certain view of that is not right. Your heart breaks for them. Help us remember from what we've been saved, Lord. Remind us that if you can save us, you can save anybody. What's so great about us? Your love, that's it. You loved us enough that you came for us. Lord, as we worship, stir that in our heart. Cause us in a time of worship to rise to our feet, to lift our hand, to kneel before you, giving all of ourself to you for the sake of this world.